This is Gina Versa from the Waffle Press Movie Podcast. I'm joined with my co-host, Diego Crespo. Hello, everyone. And with us is a guest. Um, we haven't had a guest in a little bit, but uh, joining us tonight is uh, Douglas Pipes, composer of Krampus, Trick or Treat, and a small film I worked on, Awaken the Shadow Man. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight, Doug. Um, how are you doing? Great. How are you guys? I'm doing good, doing good. Um, yeah, we, we met at a few film festivals uh, for Shadow Man, and, um, you know, it was, uh, it was always great talking talking to you, and um, just, you know, it was such a great experience on that film, and it's uh, it's really cool to uh, to have you on to talk about music. Um, so just jumping right into it, Doug, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, how you got started in scoring films? Yeah, so I'm a L.A. area native. I grew up a little bit south here, pretty close to Disneyland, actually. Um, and I started out uh, playing music in bands. I, I grew up playing music. And while I was in a band, I was approached to score an independent film. And I really liked it. And I got a couple more indie films from that. Really enjoyed it. But didn't feel like I was quite the composer I wanted to be because... Uh, listening to my scores for those films compared to the scores that I really liked, I didn't think I was to the to the proper level. So I stopped and went to school, went to university to study orchestration and composition. Uh, not for film scoring, just orchestral and uh, conducting orchestration and writing. So I got a degree in music, and while I was doing that, I started back up scoring student films, and I met... Uh, Gil Kennan, a student at UCLA at the time, and worked on his student films. He got a, a gig after his after he graduated. His master's thesis kind of got passed around short film, and he got uh, signed on to do the Spielberg Zemeckis produced Monster House. And he was able to bring me along as his composer. And that was the sort of the first thing that I had done. Um, on a on a grand scale, and from there, um, that's kind of what got the ball rolling. Yeah. What uh, backpedaling for a bit. What uh, what was the band that you were in? I'm just curious. Oh, just local bands. They they okay. we never got it to the point where um, you know, we put anything out that uh, had any yeah. tra- any traction. And uh, were you guys a specific genre? I guess you would say, you know, sort of alternative rock. Um, I, but, you know, I was the keyboard player. Um, so I played keyboards and piano and sang and wrote songs. And uh, But it became, you know, the, the, the allure of composing for film is that you, you know, you're your own schedule. So you can be as... Um, committed to it or uncommitted as you want and I tend to be obsessive and work 18 hour days and, and all that kind of stuff so it suited suited me well 18 hour days you're, you're a hard worker my friend that is very impressive I, every composer works 18 hour days when they're on a film trust me <laughs> that's not unique There's, that's every every composer's in fact 18 might be a might be a short day on some projects. There are some days where you're hoping to get four hours sleep. 
That, that's very interesting. I'm a big uh, Alien fan, and the uh, Alien, Aliens, even Alien Three, which I know might be divisive, but uh, I'm I'm familiar with uh, uh, Jerry Goldsmith, and uh, oh, this is gonna kill me. Who scored Aliens? Was Goldsmith mm-hmm. or Aliens was, was uh, um, excuse me, uh, James Horner. Yeah, James okay. Horner. And, and Jerry Goldsmith scored that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, James Horner was almost fired because he couldn't figure out how to uh he hadn't worked on a production of that size uh for aliens and so i remember stories about him and james cameron almost having a fallen out after yeah. after that because it was just such a, a vastly different experience that he wasn't used to but uh speaking of different uh film flavors i guess you could call them uh you worked on the babysitter directed by McG, and you've done a project with Michael Dougherty for years now. The last one, I believe, was Krampus. Uh, what's what's it like working with two filmmakers uh, on two totally different budget sizes? Uh, yeah, budget size kind of just gives you sort of... It, it sort of tells you what your palette of that you get to work with is. So, obviously, the bigger the budget. The, the first film I did, Monster House... Um, the first studio film, I got to use an 85-piece orchestra, and I had basically all the resources. The studio gave me anything I needed because um, that was such a big-budgeted project. And, you know, when the budget gets tighter, you just have to figure out ways to either, um, if you're going to use a full orchestra, how to maximize your time. And then if you're not going to use a full orchestra because you don't have enough budget for that, then you just, you know, figure out what sort of instrumentation and palette you have. And not all scores obviously call for a big budget approach, but um, that that just sort of indicates what you have at your disposal. But the music, you know, at the core of it, you're writing music that you want uh, to be effective. And... The film budget itself usually dictates its own needs, meaning um, if someone's creating a film with no money that requires an orchestral score, well, now there's a problem. <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the nature of the film often dictates the, um, the budget for the score. Right. Like, I'm sure, um, you know, something like Halloween, it would be a smaller sort of orchestra to it as opposed to uh, Avatar or something. Yeah, you know, the, the, the big Marvel movies aren't, aren't done on a shoestring budget, and they, they, it would be kind of weird if they were not given the resources to pull them off, but they are, so. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about... Horror film scores, uh, Halloween, Rosemary's Baby, um, and even Exorcist, where they reused um, uh, tubular bells to appropriate for their film. Um, what is it in using music to create these scares that you could um, give us some insight into, Doug? I think... Uh, I think- those scores that you talked about, I, c- I come from the school that is horror scores that are 
melodic and musical and aren't trying to be sound effect scores can be quite effective. Not to say that you can't have a sound effect type score and be effective and be very uh, um, visceral and, and whatnot, but those specific scores that you're talking about and why they work, uh, the dynamics of them and their ability to have music mm -hmm. sort of help tell the narrative and mm -hmm. also they're not always trying to be um, horror stories, horror store, sorry, horror scores. Um, so that when they are being horrific and I, you know, an example I use all the time is, uh, poltergeist, which is the score itself is a lot of fantasy and, you know, Caroline's theme is a lullaby. It's, it can, it, it has such a range of dynamics that when the craziness sets in, it's, it's much, that much more effective because you do have the sense of being lulled into something and then it hits you harder. If everything is sort of of the same tone, it loses a little bit of its um, effect over the course of 90 minutes or you know, two hours. Yeah, it needs to have some, some warmth in it, I could imagine. Yeah, and there, there just needs, there need to be dynamics and space and, and you know, differences of, uh, of effect for, it to, for each one to play as strongly in their appropriate uses. To me, um, It Follows um, had some uh, themes early on that really gave the central characters um, some, uh, some like compassion that you could um, attach yourselves to them. I, I, I really enjoyed It Follows. I thought that was great movie. Well done. Great score. Yeah. Uh, another movie that people really enjoy uh, is Michael Dougherty and Your Trick or Treat, mm -hmm. uh, which, not that it had trouble finding an audience, it just had a little trouble finding distribution, tragically, uh, early, in its, early in its run. But um, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to watch that film finally find its audience and everyone who watch it, watches it pretty much just comes away talking about it nonstop, especially big horror fans who uh, recommend it to everyone specifically around this time of year, Halloween. What's it like to see that grow? I have to say it's, it's actually quite an honor to be a part of something that has had such a um, strong growing reception and, and, People have such a uh, a strong bond with it. You know, people love Halloween, and and really, for a lot of people, this movie speaks to them. Um, pretty pretty honored to be part of that process. You know, when it came out, or when it was supposed to come out in two thousand seven, it was it was set to be released, and then uh, they they held it back. I, they just didn't feel like they. I'm not sure exactly why. I don't know the answers, but. It didn't come out until 2009 on DVD, but it had played in a couple festivals and here and there and at Comic-Con, and the, and the reception was always really positive. So when it came out on DVD, it just started building this sort of ground swell um, of attention, and it keeps growing, and it seems like even this year, it's you know more than it was last year, and it keeps growing and growing. So it's pretty exciting to see. Uh, and people have really embraced the character Sam, and mm -hmm. yeah, it's 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 really something special to see it uh, keep 
growing and, and becoming, um, you know, hearing people say that it's, it's on their list of must-sees every Halloween. I was going to say, it's, uh, it started, it uh, kicked off a little cinematic universe with, it and, with uh, Trick or Treat and Krampus. Yeah. What about, um, we were talking a little bit about uh, Universal Horror Nights and it, Trick or Treat is a feature there. You, you said that you got to uh, visit the, the haunt, Doug? Yeah, so we, um, there was a, an opening night party and we, we got to go through it. Um, Michael and some of the other filmmakers, uh, we all went through it. And then I went back last weekend with my family. But that's, having not uh, got to visit the set, it was filmed in Vancouver and I was brought on in post. So it was already filmed by the time I came on board. So there was something nice about seeing the the recreations, you know, a little bit of the different different sets and walking through yeah. it, and just to see people line up to see it. It's again, it's it's humbling and it's an honor to be a part of something that's um, become what it has become. It's 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 really fun to see, and they did one. Um, they did like a scare zone last year at Orlando where they had an outside one and I didn't get to go there, but I saw videos of it and they play the music and it has the whole atmosphere and people are dressed up as the characters. And they even did a, um, Halloween Horror Nights did a Krampus one a couple years ago and that was pretty special to see as well. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, it's, um, it's like a mini, uh, monument to this film almost. Yeah. 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 Uh, changing gears here, let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, vinyl release of um, Krampus and Trick or Treat through Waxworks. They've been doing some uh, really great work in bringing a lot of film scores to vinyl, releasing it through there. Um, how's that feel, Doug? Oh, that was that was a dream come true. Um, I think Kevin over at Waxwork reached out to Michael, maybe late. 2013 or early 2014 and they you know when I heard they were putting out this double release I was ecstatic as you can imagine to have your score put out on vinyl it was one of their earlier releases um, but it went and I the first release sold out and they repressed it so now they have a, a second pressing of the picture discs and yeah just having a you know, as you can imagine, a composer having scores on vinyl is, and on CD, is very, uh, it's very special. Oh, of course, yeah. No, congratulations. Um, and I was gonna say it's the uh, the last cultural uh, cultural experience is listening to a vinyl record as well. Yeah, it's fun to see people buy vinyl records and post pictures of them. Or little videos playing the music and you know people have little shrines around their record players to their favorite vinyl that they're playing it's a it's a much more um, personal experience you get to sort of experience people's personality a lot more than just by someone forwarding a Spotify playlist you know, oh, you know? yeah <laughs> It's it's nice to to have that sort of communal aspect that's that's going on with it. Yeah. Uh, on that note, 
the next question was going to be if you prefer digital or physical copies for your music, but it sounds like you're pretty high on, on physical copies at the moment. <laughs> it, it, it's nice to have that tactile experience of holding the product, looking at the, um, you know, looking at the artwork, seeing the liner notes, finding out who worked on it, seeing all the credit, <clears throat> excuse me, the credits. Um, you don't get that with digital. I, I appreciate that everything's available digitally. It's nice to know that everyone that wants to hear it has access to it. But I am very appreciative of the people that support the companies that invest in producing CDs and um, vinyl. And in my case, it's been Waxwork doing the vinyl and La La Land Records with the CDs and Verez Sarabound with the Monster House CD. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about temp music. Um, some, some directors have uh, famously used it to get, you know, everyone uses it to get this uh, idea of how they want their film to work. How, what is your process in working with temp music, Doug? Double-edged sword, you know, you, you hear a temp score and sometimes you can, it, it certainly is a, works as great shorthand to get the conversation started. Um, especially uh, just sort of getting the ball rolling. But in the best case of scenarios, it's, it's used just in, you know, to help sort of frame the, the cut and get, when, when it's played internally, people can, you know, if people are watching the cut internally and there's no music to it, especially not, not the actual filmmakers, but maybe other people involved in the studio side, it's going to be hard to watch it without music because it will feel flat. So I understand the need for it. Um, so in the best case scenarios, it just becomes shorthand that you can kind of set aside and not worry about. Every once in a while, yeah, something gets... Um, you know, there are times when something really is working for the filmmakers and you have to figure out a way to get at what is making it work for them but still make it your own. That's a that's a challenge that every composer has to come up with. And one of the one of the most rewarding ones is to see a different solution and have that you know, get that won over by the filmmakers where uh Maybe there's an aspect of bringing out – nothing can bring out the, the true characters of a movie like an original score. And so yeah. when you are getting digging deep into this, as you go along, you start to see opportunities. And, and it always turns this way that the connective tissue of the different themes and the original score is what brings the movie together. A temp score would never have the same effect. But sometimes there might be an isolated case where something's doing, playing a scene a certain way. And, and if you approach it in a completely different way because you want to bring out a different emotion or, or highlight a, uh, just a different uh, aspect to the scene, sometimes having that and selling that can be really rewarding because that's, that can be some of the most creative work you do as a, as a composer.
I'm curious, did Michael Dowry uh, use any temp tracks um, that stuck out to you in either Krampus or Trick or Treat? Well, I mean, every film uses temp music. And so, um, yeah, not, not, not necessarily that it stuck out. And especially with Krampus, um, I, I, I don't even remember the temp track on, on Trick or Treat. But I know in yeah. Krampus, the, aside from the temp track, um, that was not going to really be a problem because we knew going into it that everything was going to be, every cue was going to have sort of a subtle or overt holiday Christmassy vibe to it. So either through the instrumentation or little, uh, little fragments of maybe a Christmas melody, that was well, all going to be in the original score. So, um, there was no way they were going to temp it with that effect so yeah um yeah i don't i don't i don't think that was ever even uh everything everything from that temp score wasn't gonna be it didn't relate to the direction that we were going with ultimately with krampus mm -hmm. um in in that regard but you know there there might be a scene where we tried it with uh a t you know temp music that was at a certain pacing and tried a different you know I would try a different pacing, or he'd call me up and say, hey, let's try something different um, than what mm -hmm. we have there. And, and that's, that's when it gets, you know, that's when it gets um, interesting to, to, to keep working through all those situations. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious who suggested uh, the, uh, for the opening scene for Krampus, the, um, I believe it's the, tr the song Happy Holidays. For the uh, for the opening scene, uh, so there's there are music supervisors. I'm not sure exactly who did it. I, I get a sense it was Michael Michael's mm -hmm. choice to have um, that, but uh, I some of the some of the song choices I'm not well. All of the song choices that were licensed um, are, aren't part of my process, and that's that's normal. Like even on the babysitter. There's a music supervisor on that, Tracy McKnight, and on um, Krampus, Peter Afterman. They're, you know, they're helping put license to music that's that is being put into these films, and that's not something that I'm I'm completely focused on the score. So I'm just told, like I'll see that it's there, and I'm not scoring that scene. Gotcha. But it's nice to know what it is, so I know where I'm coming from and where I'm, you know. Uh, outside of the, the film itself, when you're scoring it, what would you say is your your biggest influence? Uh, would it be the material or uh, other other artists that you whose work you follow that that would inspire your creative process? So I, you know, I, I grew up listening to a lot of film music, especially when I was studying to be a, a composer. Listening to went through a, a big process on that, but I also attend a lot of concerts and listen to a, a wide variety of music to keep my musical vocabulary uh, up. Um, and then when I'm working on a film, uh, you know, aside from the, the main narrative and the acting and the script, just the art direction and the lighting and the colors, that informs a lot of the choices I will make for uh, the instruments I use, the orchestration, the whether it's going to be um, voices or an orchestral instruments or 
analog synthesizer, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's really informed by the all aspects of the of the film. All aspects. On that on that note, uh, what horror film sequence do you think wouldn't have the same impact without like uh, a score to support it? Like uh, something like a Halloween. Swimming scenes in Jaws. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's a, that's a, you know, the shower scene in Psycho is a famous one, where mm -hmm. if I understand correctly, um, Alfred Hitchcock didn't want music there, and Bernard Herrmann said, "No, you got to have music," and he sold him on it. Um, that was going to be done silently, and that that was, you know, it, it wouldn't have worked the way it worked. And I think that goes for most, you know, most effective scenes. The music is do you know, without it, it wouldn't work. Unless it's a well-crafted scene that is meant to be without music, and it, that was the original intention. And sometimes that that is that is the most effective way to do it. Um, right. But I'm I'm going to assume in most cases where there is score, it's because without score, it wasn't it wouldn't have worked as well. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine how that shower scene would be without that, that Bernard Herman track uh, that, that makes it as, um, as emotionally investing as it is in that moment. Uh, Doug, um, can you talk a little bit about any, um, any, your, any, um, so if you got a score, any sort of uh, film outside of um, anything that, that you scored before, what, what would it be? I'd like to do, like I have a dream project would be to score a sort of a space sci-fi um, movie, something with on a sort of grand fantasy scale. But uh, also on the pet project side, I'm working on a horror fantasy musical, you know, writing that on my side. Um, that's a sort of slow, slow building process, but something I work on in between um, other projects. Yeah. Early cool. stages still. That's a, a it's a quite an endeavor. So. Yeah. Early, early scoop. Yeah. Uh, after working on a handful of holiday horror films, do you have a favorite holiday? And if a director came to you to pitch a holiday-themed horror film. What holiday would you want to score next? I still think there's room for Halloween and Christmas. Um, those seem to be the the best ones. But um, yeah, at this point in time in the world, I think there's something to be said for scoring a Fourth of July movie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I don't, you know, I'm not being specific to genre. But if you're just gonna say Halloween, I think. Um, you know, sort of everyone's pulling on the flag like they own it from all sides. Uh, I think there's there's some material there. Yeah, exactly. Be cathartic, I would imagine. Yeah, maybe that's <laughs> yeah. maybe that's why I want to do it. Doug, uh, um, since you've worked on uh, some uh, a Christmas film, do you like Christmas music? I do like. I'm one of the people that when I hear start hearing you know obviously you don't want to hear christmas music before thanksgiving that's yeah that, that's, that's, that's that not be, allowed but that should be a but, rule or something 
But <laughs> broadcasting the, off. Yeah, but the minute after, you know, whether it's the if it start if it's December, and I hear Christmas mm-hmm. music, I'm in a good mood. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not one of the, I'm not a bah humbug at all. I love it. Yeah. I love embracing oh. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like a. It's like being at Disneyland, or it's something euphoric where it gets you happy. Unless it's, unless it's like uh, the dogs barking, uh, a Christmas song, or um, yeah, not yeah. maybe not the most uh, um, novelty versions of Christmas music, but certainly, right. it the to me the music is the least consumer oriented aspect of Christmas that we still have. So I'll take the music over the early displays of Christmas sales and all that kind of stuff. Do you, um, is there any one song, um, that, uh, that comes to mind when you're, um, when you're, um, thinking of Christmas music? Uh, no, I, I, uh, I think the one I hear the most in my head is have yourself a merry little Christmas, but, um, I, I I like all the classics, Silent Night. I like I like, uh, yeah, I, I like it all. I'm not I'm not not crazy about all the poppy stuff. I, uh, I do I do so, like the the sort of nostalgic classic ones. So obviously not Grandma got run over by a reindeer or something. It's not my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I feel sorry for Grandma, but <laughs> yeah, especially not Grandma. I mean I I can't imagine that being anyone's favorite. <laughs> all right mr douglas pipes thank you so much for joining us it was a real honor to have you and uh is there anything you could you could plug up ahead that you'd like people to check out immediately where can people find you and your work online and yeah. what's yeah. the best way to support you so um you can visit my website at douglaspipes.com follow me on twitter douglas pipes or instagram dpipes if you uh, want to hear my music, which would be fantastic, uh, vinyl is available at Waxwork Records, CDs at La La Land Records, and Verez Saraband. Um, you can also find me on iTunes and Spotify. And the more you support the physical media companies, Waxwork, La La Land, Verez Saraband, the better it is for humanity. Oh, <laughs>